0: I could have been your evangelical friend. And if you had come to our church, if you had come to the church where I was the pastor, I can think of at least three occasions when I was preaching that I mentioned not just the virgin birth of Mary, but the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, and just laughed at it, like got everybody in our church laughing at the idea that anyone would believe on the basis of the testimony of scripture that mary was a virgin after jesus uh, was was born it was a joke to us that anyone would believe that and what i discovered as i <laughs> as i looked deeply into history is the joke was on me <laughs>
1: Welcome to another amazing Technicolor episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny for this uh, special series that we're doing on Mary and how we used to think of her before when Ken Hensley was a Baptist pastor, Kenny Burchard was a Pentecostal pastor, when I was a Wesleyan, and uh, digging into some of that stuff. Of course, this is a production of the Coming Home Network, and if you want to find our resources, we've got tons of free stuff uh, over at chnetwork.com dot org, including our online community full of people who are uh, traveling along together and helping each other out, uh, as they tackle questions just like the ones we're tackling today. And if, uh, you're in, uh, that situation where you want to just talk to somebody, come visit our online community, community.chnetwork.org. I call, of course, all this is free to anybody who comes to us asking for help at the Coming Home Network because of the generous support of people who, uh, who give either one time or monthly gifts at, uh, at our site. And uh, the easiest way to do that is just go to chnetwork.org slash compass to find out more. So, after two heavily substantial episodes about Mary, Ken and Kenny, are you ready to get into the perpetual virginity? I don't think this one's going to be as hard as some people think it might be. I'm ready. You're right. Okay, good. I'm glad that both of you think <laughs> I'm right because this is maybe the. Uh, The only time in the workplace that that I'll hear it from both of you in unison. (laughs) But last week we dealt with the first of the four Marian dogmas, the divine motherhood of Mary. Mary is the mother of God. Um, I feel like we covered that pretty well. Uh, Today we get to talk about another dogma relating to Mary. Mary's perpetual virginity. Now, a lot of Protestants are like, yeah, virgin birth, good. Perpetual virginity, I don't know, man. So (laughs) let's go with Ken first. How? in the world did you become okay with this idea of mary being a virgin not just when she conceived jesus but her whole life
2: yeah well i guess it goes without saying that when i was a baptist pastor this idea was just complete nonsense i thought that the catholic conception of mary's perpetual virginity was nothing short of insane and in fact it's interesting i was with an evangelical friend just a couple of months ago we went kind of a Traveling a little bit together and talking. And he brought this up. He mentions, he mentioned uh, Mary's perpetual virginity and he looked at me, Matt, with this, this look as if to say, you know, where in the world do you Catholics come up with even a shred of evidence for this nutty idea that somehow it would be unseemly for Mary to have had a normal marriage with Joseph and to have born? many sons and daughters and all that. Well, this this is how I thought. And this is how it begins to change for me, Matt. It began to change when I began to read more deeply into the early church and read the early church fathers because I began to see that the perpetual virginity of Mary, well, it it appeared to be something that Christians had always believed. And I I have just a couple of quotes for you here. In the early 200s, so we're talking about a hundred years prior to the first ecumenical council in Nicaea in 325. A hundred years prior, we have Origen in his commentary on John's gospel writing, and I quote, There is no child of Mary except Jesus, according to the opinion of those who think correctly about her. One century later, we see the great Cappadocian father, Basil of Caesarea, in his homily on the Holy Nativity writing this, and I quote, those who love Christ refuse to hear that the mother of God ceased to be a virgin at a particular moment. They don't only, they don't only, don't only not teach this. They refuse to even hear it. They refuse to listen to this idea that she um, did not remain a virgin um, after marrying Joseph. Later in the fourth century, there's a Roman writer whose name was Helvidius, he claimed that the brothers and sisters of jesus mentioned in the gospels were the actual children of mary and joseph and the great biblical scholar st jerome came down on him like a batch of bricks st jerome wrote an entire treatise titled the perpetual virginity of mary in which he argued primarily from scripture and i know that kenny's going to mention this in a moment so this seems to be something this seemed to be something to me that everyone believed. In fact, all the way up to the time of the Reformation as we saw last week, we saw we see Martin Luther and John Calvin the two most noteworthy leaders of the Reformation in the 16th century believing in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Here's Luther. A new lie about me is being circulated. I am supposed to have preached and written that Mary the mother of God was not a virgin either before or after the birth of christ jesus christ was the only son of mary and the virgin mary bore no children besides him that's from the lips of martin luther himself isn't this the case kenny
0: it is and i and i would say that i'm right there with you ken in terms of history being a really helpful um element in how i changed my mind about Mary, you know, to get back to Matt's question, how in the world did you change your mind? And, and you know, like your, your evangelical friend you mentioned, Ken, I, I could have been your evangelical friend. And if you had come to our church, if you had come to the church where I was the pastor, I can think of at least three occasions when I was preaching that I mentioned not just the virgin birth of Mary, but the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, and just laughed at it. Like, got everybody in our church laughing at the idea that anyone would believe, on the basis of the testimony of Scripture, that Mary was a virgin after Jesus uh, was was born it was a joke to us that anyone would believe that and what i discovered as i <laughs> as i looked deeply into history is the joke was on me <laughs> it was almost impossible to find uh, scholars interpreters uh, apologists bishops pastors leaders in the church of jesus for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years you could say Really, over fifteen hundred years, you were an outlier if you didn't believe that Mary was an ever virgin that she was always a virgin, and so like when i when I answer the question, "How did you ever come around Matt?" I say what I did is i I plugged in what I call the the ecclesial hermeneutical lens i'm pointing up my glasses here because these are lenses that I put on to help see me better, uh, see things better. And what I didn't have, and I discovered this as I read history, what I didn't have was an ecclesial lens. I wasn't reading scripture in conversation with, in communion with, in dialogue with the church across history. And as I began to do that and read biblical texts next to the commentators who were talking about them through centuries of church history they almost uniformly agree that the texts uh, need to be interpreted uh with respect to mary and her virginity and children etc in the light that she always was a virgin and you know before we move on i'll throw up a book here for people to to uh to get if they want to this was a book that helped me incredibly might be hard to read uh, and see it but it's called mary and the fathers of the church. And it's by Luigi Gambero. And it is an incredible journey through, through the Marian, uh, theology uh, of the church as it emerges out of the Bible and across the centuries. So history as an mm-hmm. interpretive helper, um, got me there. And we'll, and we'll unpack, you know, a lot of this, but that, that's kind of the, the big idea for me, Ken and Matt. All
1: right. So then, both of you committed to Sola Scriptura. I was too. Uh, you cared about the Bible. You didn't care what the Church Fathers had to say about this. I know that that was the case for me. I mean, don't tell me what Tertullian and Origen and the like have to say about this. I want to know what the Bible has to say about this. So let's go to the Bible. Um, I'll start with you, Kenny. Uh, how did you come to see that this was there was evidence for this? At least it was plausible from the text of the Scriptures.
0: Well, let let me start uh, to answer this question by going to an often uh, quoted text, I would say by both Catholics and Protestants, regarding um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that would be uh, the text in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 34. This is the annunciation of the birth of Jesus by the angel Gabriel. And, and what we want to do, like you said, Matt, we want to look at scripture. But what I want to do is I want to read scripture with the church. I want to bring the church with me, the church through all time as my interpretive partner and uh, let the church help me uh, interpret these texts that are right in front of me that I can read for myself. So in Luke chapter 1, uh, 34, uh, the angel Gabriel has told Mary, uh, you know, hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You know, she wonders what kind of greeting this is. And the angel says to her, you will conceive a child. Uh, you will bear a son. You will name him Jesus. He goes into all these things you will do, Mary. And Mary has this curious response. She says to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man. And if you have a new international virgin, uh, version version, <laughs> your Bible says, Since I am a virgin. If you have a revised standard version Bible, your Bible says, Since I have no husband. Um And some translations put what Mary says here into the past tense, so it would be something like, since I have not had sexual relations with a man. But in reality, none of those are exactly what Mary says in the text. She says, I'll quote a little Greek here, uh, epe andra uginosko, literally, since a man I do not know. And, um, for nerdy people who like grammar, she does this in the present active indicative sense. In other words, what the angel, get this, what the angel says is, you will conceive future, you will bear future, you will name him. In fact, he gives eight future tense, uh, you wills, to marry. And she asks this curious question, how can this be since I do not presently know a man. This isn't about something that she hasn't done yet. This is about something she doesn't do. Uh, I could use some sort of English equivalence of this. I could say, uh, you will get into an accident when driving to work, or you will get intoxicated while drinking wine at dinner, or you will not like your next haircut. And Mary's response to the angel is something like, how can this be? I don't drive. How can this be? I don't drink. How can this be? I don't cut my hair. So she isn't talking about what she hasn't done. She's talking about what she doesn't do. Not only what she hasn't done, isn't doing now, and what she won't do in the future. And that helped me to understand biblically why Gabriel had to come back to her with, no, look, it's going to be God who does this. In a sense, Gabriel is telegraphing to Mary in the Catholic way of looking at this text that he knows that about Mary, that he knows that she doesn't do that, but that it's going to be the Holy Spirit that brings this about. And that also helps to make sense of the curious response uh, of of Mary, who is about to get married, and uh, if an angel comes to you and says hey you're going to have a child you're going to conceive a child well what's the natural response of a soon to be bride well that's great so that means god's telling me i'm not barren like some of the women in the old testament when i get married and joseph and i come together i'm going to be able to conceive and i'm going to have a child no no surprise there what a blessing no she says to gabriel i i don't i don't see how this is possible since i don't do what's necessary to have children. So, you know, from my perspective, I started reading these texts that just seemed so clear to me, you know, the plain reading of the text. I started to read these texts uh, with the church as my interpretive partner, going back to the original languages and realizing, wait a minute, the way that the church through the centuries has interpreted this text Actually, makes a heck of a lot of sense. It's not as laughable as a conclusion as I thought it might have been. And these early writers, and the fathers, and even the reformers started to—they started to make sense to me. And and I'll stop right there. But that—that's one text that that really um, I would say that really took on a new light to me as I read it with some of these other backgrounds and language in mind.
1: Kenny even without getting into the Greek when you just read uh, whatever translation you're in um I mean except for maybe well most translations when you read that that if you you come away with a couple of impressions if you think it through if Gabriel comes to Mary and says you're going to have a baby you know and it even says in the text a virgin was betrothed to a man named Joseph and the virgin's name was Mary right um the way that Mary responds, how can this be for I, you know, no, not man, then you have to come to either two conclusions, one of two conclusions, really, basically. I mean, I'm sure you could come to some others that I haven't thought through, but one of them would be that Mary's about to get married and nobody has told her where babies yeah. come from, right, <laughs> uh, because it's not crazy for you to walk up to somebody who's about to get married and say, you know what, you're going to have a baby.
0: I yeah, maybe like she maybe she doesn't know how babies are made. That would that right would be, exactly. That so, would I mean, be one accounting that for her response.
1: Mary's response would possibly be something if she, I mean, she might say something like, "What do you mean he's going to be the son of God?" <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead, she says, right. "What do you mean I'm going to get pregnant?" So, I mean, there's there's a very kind of strange exchange that goes on in this in this thing. You know, the other option is that she may have taken some kind of vow. Right. That's plausible. Right. You can acknowledge that, but again, in a post-sexual revolution culture, it's kind of crazy for us to, to think that somebody might enter into that kind of arrangement. Um, and I know talk about the craziness of, of entering into that kind of arrangement because, as Ken, you said at the beginning of this, it seemed just insane that this might be the case. Uh, I remember um, when I was a Protestant watching the movie Dogma by Kevin Smith, the Jay and Silent Bob movie, which I would never recommend to another living human. And I remember enjoying it, um, mostly because it was kind of an oddly colorful picture, although an extremely errant picture of the Catholic Church. I thought, you could never make a movie like this about free Methodists. It's got, like, Matt Damon as the angel of death, and, like, Chris Rock is like, the 13th apostle. And it, um, then there's this woman, one of the protagonists, is supposedly the great-great-great-great-grandniece of Jesus because she's the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of some other child that mary and joseph had and chris rock says to her she's you know she's saying this can't be i can't be the last scion as it were and he says well you know mary was a virgin before jesus was born sure uh but you know faith in god uh the virgin birth those are all leaps of faith but to believe that mary and joseph you know would never have as Chris Rock puts it, gotten down. That's just plain gullibility, right? And I laughed because I thought, well, that's, you know, Chris Rock is on to something as the 13th Apostle Rufus. So, I mean, it's hard for us to conceive of that in this post-sexual revolution age, but it wouldn't have been insane necessarily in first century Judaism. Uh, I mean, Ken, you've got some thoughts on this, right?
2: Yeah, no, it would not have been insane. In fact, although you didn't say this, Kenny, in your presentation, what you were saying is that, It appears that Mary had made a vow of of chastity, of celibacy, which seems insane, especially because she's betrothed. She's betrothed to Joseph, and yet her response, uh, again, I just reiterate what you said, but it makes so much sense. When the angel comes and says, you're going to bear a son, you're going to have a child, the most natural response from her, she's engaged, she's betrothed, she's going to get married, would have been wonderful, thank you, it's good to know, instead, how can this be? Because I do not know man. I do not know a man. And so, is there evidence that in that culture at that time, something like this would be conceivable? That is this kind of a vow. And there is evidence. A, a, a couple of points quickly. First of all, Philo of Alexandria, a first century Jewish philosopher, he describes a sect that he refers to as the therapeutai in which there were both celibate men and aged virgins. Now I'm quoting him, aged virgin virgins, the Greek is parthenoi, who had kept their chastity not under compulsion like some of the Greek priestesses, but of their own free will. So the basic idea of a vow of chastity being taken was something that was known at the time. Uh, the first century historian Josephus tells us that within the sect of the Essenes, um, vows of chastity were made, and they were made— By married women and married men who would voluntarily, this is Josephus describing this, they would voluntarily abstain from relations for up to three years at a time. So this is not a permanent vow, but still the idea of a married man or a married woman taking a vow of celibacy for a time. Um, One more. In the Mishnah, dating from around 200 AD, there are references to married Jewish men and married Jewish women taking vows to abstain from ordinary relations. So yes, there is evidence of this, but I want to go back much further because this goes back all the way to the law of Moses. Um, In fact, in the book of Numbers, in the law of Moses, there is an entire chapter that's devoted to the question of vows, vows that an ancient Israelite woman might take. The passage talks about vows that a single woman might take before the Lord and also vows that a widowed woman might take, but it also speaks of married women. And what it says in essence is that if a married woman takes a vow, she's bound by this vow unless her husband, when he hears about it, says essentially no way, you know, puts the kibosh on it, okay? Um, here are a couple of verses from Numbers chapter 30, verses 13 through 15. I'm quoting. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself her husband may establish or her husband may make void; but if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day when he heard of them, and if he makes them null, but, but if he makes them null and void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. Okay, Moses is talking about the vows or the pledges that a married woman might take. And in the Hebrew, the words are anoth nephesh, which means a vow to mortify oneself. So this married woman is taking a vow to mortify herself or to afflict herself in the English translation that I read. Um, and here's the thing it could refer to self denial of any kind. In fact, this These Hebrew words are used a a number of times in the Old Testament to talk about fasting. That is, fasting from food, fasting from drink. But in Leviticus 16, verse 29, this Hebrew phrase is used to refer to abstinence from marital relations on the Day of Atonement. And according to the Mishnah, written many, many centuries later, this is how the law of Numbers 30 was understood by the most ancient interpreters and I just want to conclude by saying this this makes sense when you think about it after all it doesn't really make sense to think that an entire chapter of the mosaic law would be devoted to talking about how an unmarried woman might make a vow to fast or a widowed woman might make a vow to fast from food and drink or how a married woman might make a vow And in all this about if her husband hears her making the vow and he doesn't put the kibosh on it, then she's held by it. But if he hears it and he puts the kibosh, then she's not held. You know, it just doesn't make sense to think that an entire chapter of the law of Moses would be given over to something like fasting or drinking in this way. But given that it's women being described, unmarried women, married women, and widowed women, the idea that what it's referring to is women who would make a vow of chastity before the Lord. It all makes perfect sense. This passage is talking about vows of chastity. And, um, Kenny, I think that you probably could add to this. That is evidence from the New Testament itself that this is exactly what, what, um, Mary and Joseph had done.
0: Yeah. The, the church has always, um, had always up until maybe a few centuries ago uniformly read new testament texts in light of the fact that mary and probably joseph were both consecrated virgins that they had taken vows of abstinence that's what those were in numbers chapter 30 uh, to abstain uh, which didn't mean that they they couldn't get married in any in every other sense of the word but in that area of their lives they had mary had at least taken a vow of of chastity or a vow of uh, consecrated virginity and as you said in numbers chapter 30 her husband joseph did have the freedom to essentially cancel that vow for her if he didn't want her to keep it and the church has always said he he didn't do that and what i would have responded with right here uh, ken when i wasn't a catholic is with a verse that now, as I read it as a Catholic, it, it's turned on its head, as it were. I would have said, yeah, but Ken, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 25, in my English Standard Version Bible, it says this, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. I would have said, see, Ken, right there in Matthew, it says that Joseph did not know Mary or did not have sexual relations with Mary until she had given birth to a son. And I, I remember talking about this verse uh, to our church and, and sort of going back and forth with them and, and, and telling them, see, this verse implies, by using the word until, that there was a moment uh, where Mary and Joseph crossed over into marital intimacy. When was that moment? Well, after they had given birth to their son, Jesus. Well, interestingly, um, this text had for over 1500 years be, been interpreted to mean just the opposite of that, uh, using the very same word until H E O S in English, chaos, until. And what can be really fun with this is to go through the Bible and look at every time the word Chaos is used and ask yourself, does it mean that the thing was happening up to that moment and then something else happened after? Give you a few examples of this. Second Samuel chapter six, verse 23. It's, uh, it says, And Mikal, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. <laughs> Yeah. Does this does this mean that? Yeah, then she that, had all kinds of children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the yeah. Old Testament, chaos is used there. Mikal had no children until the day of her death. But here, here's a couple from the New Testament, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, chaos. until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to preaching, and to teaching. Okay, Paul, what well, does that mean that now after you come, I don't have to preach and teach anymore? Uh, or one in, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 25, Paul says, for Christ or he must reign until chaos, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Well, does that mean that then after he puts all of his enemies under his feet, he doesn't reign anymore? And we could do this all day long. I don't need to belabor the point. The point is that the rule with chaos, or the rule for interpreting chaos, is that it communicates about only what happens until a given moment, but not, it's not making implications about what happens after that moment. If it was, then there would be a lot of nonsense in the Bible where the word until is used. And so because uh, the Catholic interpretation of these texts is rooted in an ecclesial hermeneutic, in other words, the church has understood this for its whole existence, then the way that the church has always understood this until text is to just mean that they never had sexual relations, neither before nor up to the point nor after the point, which is the exact same way that you would interpret all of those other texts that have the word until in it as well. So again, we're we're, we're on firm footing uh, so far with all the proof texts that we would have used to discredit the perpetual vir- virginity of well,
2: Mary. W- well, also, the reason, as you said, that when, once you understand that passage, it teaches the reverse of what you thought it had taught before, is that Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another, but then the day comes when they, when they are married, when the ceremony takes place. That's well, right. The normal thing would be, the ceremony takes place and they consummate their marriage. So what this passage is saying is that they have the ceremony and they didn't consummate their marriage.
0: That's exactly Why? right.
2: Why didn't they come together until Jesus was born? And, and everything you just said about Intel. So that, that that strengthens the idea. Uh, it strengthens the idea that something unique was going on
0: here. It does, Ken. And there are other there are other texts with respect to marriage be- before all this as well. For instance, the angel says, do not fear to take to you Mary to be your wife. And then it says, after that, he took her to be his wife. Well, the colloquial understanding for taking someone to be your wife is that you consummate the marriage, and yet the text tells us that they didn't do that. And so what, what the church has taught is that in every sense of the word that we use the word marriage, Joseph and Mary had a marriage, a normal marriage, except based on the text of Scripture and this ecclesial hermeneutic, this this lens that through which we look at the history of interpretation, there's one area where they both remained consecrated to the Lord, and that's in the area of consummating the relationship sexually which we can talk about why they might have uh, done that here, here in a bit but so far we we're on solid ground here
1: yeah and uh, there are a few different things I I have to be careful about what all I add here um one is to say that who among us has not dropped off our children with babysitters and said you be good until I get back right after that let the monkeys run loose but i want to talk about the um, the verse, the passage, the passage is that when Kenny Burchard was in the pulpit, he'd get ready to read this passage and he'd say, where are my Catholics at? Where are my Catholics at? And then he'd read it and say, see, and that is, uh, passages where it says, you know, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to talk to you. Or when he goes back home and say, they say, gee, isn't this the carpenter's son, right? Or don't we know his brothers? And then they name him. Uh, how in the world do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so to tie this back, you know, so far in this episode, we've talked about the fact that you read through church history and quotation after quotation, all the way up until the time of the Reformers, everyone seems to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And then Kenny has gone to the classic text in Luke chapter one, and then to Matthew chapter one, and explained how what is taught there could very plausibly be that Mary has taken a vow of chastity. That's why she doesn't know a man. That's why she's surprised when the angel Gabriel comes and says you're going to have a child and all that. But what you're raising, Matt, is this, which is really the most common objection. It's like, come on, you guys. These things you're saying have some weight. History has weight. This interpretation that you've given of Luke 1 and Matthew 1 has some weight. But bottom line is, doesn't the... Don't the Gospels talk about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Don't the Gospel writers name them? And doesn't that just pretty much blow this whole thing out of the water? Well, that's what I want to address now. And I need to do a little bit of detail here, although I will do my best to be succinct and to summarize. But the kind of passage that you're talking about, Matt, when you raise that, is uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and the parallel to that in Matthew 13, 53 through 58. But I'll read the passage from Mark 6. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and he came to his own country. His disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him there were astonished, saying, Where did this man get all this? What is is this wisdom he's been given? What mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of james and josies or joseph judas and simon and are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him okay it was this passage that seemed like a slam dunk and it seems like a slam dunk to to all modern evangelicals for sure against the idea that mary was a perpetual perpetual virgin so i guess Here's a question that comes to me. How was it that the biblical scholar, St. Jerome, who translated, who learned Hebrew, who spent 25 years in Jerusalem learning Hebrew so that he could translate the Old Testament into Latin, how was it that the biblical scholar, St. Jerome, could write a treatise defending the perpetual virginity of, of Mary? How is it that both Luther and Calvin, whose teaching was rooted deeply in their understanding of Scripture— how could they defend it as well? Well, if you want to read more, a more thorough treatment than I'm able to give right here, I'm speaking to those who are watching, those who are listening. I, I recommend that you read the chapter on Mary's perpetual virginity from Bant, Brant Petrie's excellent book. Oh, if, if Kenny can share a book, I can share one. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. Okay. The chapter on this fills in a lot of the details that I don't have the time to go into, but let me summarize the case here in three points, really. The first point in the counterargument to that is this. While the Greek words that are translated brothers and sisters, adelphoi in the Greek for brothers, adelphi for sisters, while they do normally mean, in literature at the time, brothers and sisters, these words are flexible. They can be re- they they can be used to refer to near relatives of really any kind cousins whatnot even uncles, and I, I'll give you an example in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter thirty one. This is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Adelphoi is used to refer to Jacob's cousins and even his uncles. Here's the passage, but Jacob became angry and quarreled with Laban, who's his uncle. Jacob said to Laban. What have you found? What have you found of all the vessels of your house? In other words, Laban is accusing him of having stolen things. He says, what have you found of all the vessels of your house? Set it here before my brothers and your brothers that they may decide between us. Set it before your brothers and my brothers. Well, Jacob has no brother. Jacob's only brother is Esau and Esau is not with him at the time. So in the context, he's clearly referring to his extended uh, family Through marriage to Rachel, who was the daughter of Rachel and and, uh, and Leah, who were the daughters of of Laban, and he's basically saying, "Hey, show it to my cousins, show it to your your brothers, you know, all all of our near relatives. Show them what have I stolen from you?" And yet he uses the word, the Greek word, adelphoi, brothers. So the word is flexible. That's number one. Okay. But the second point is this, and this is much more important, much more powerful. These same brothers that are listed in Mark chapter three, I mean, chapter six and in Matthew chapter 13, James and Josie's Judas and Simon, these brothers are named elsewhere in the gospels as being the sons of a different Mary. Okay. Now this is where there's a lot of detail involved, but I have to just kind of tie it down and I encourage you to read that chapter in Grant Petrie's book. For example, at the crucifixion, we read in Mark 15, 40 and 41, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Josies and Salome. So there's this James and Joses again. Okay, there was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of James and Joses. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. Okay, Now, this Mary that is referred to here as the mother of James and Joseph or Josies, she's mentioned several times in the crucifixion narrative, in the burial, and in the resurrection narratives. In Mark, she's referred to as the mother of James and Josies. That's Mark 15, verse 40. She's referred to once as simply the mother of Josies or Joseph, Mark 15, 47. And she's referred to once as the mother of James, Mark 16, 1. And so the question arises, if if Mark in these passages, you guys, if Mark is thinking of the mother of Jesus, isn't it strange that he would never describe her as such, but would repeatedly describe her as Mary, the mother of James and Josie's, Mary, the mother of Josie's, Mary, the mother of James? Very strange. And here's the thing. We see the same thing in Matthew's gospel at the crucifixion. Listen to what we read. There were also many women there looking on from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So again, if Matthew is speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, why would he refer to her here as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph? And then in Matthew's account of the burial, this Mary, whoever she is, is simply called the other Mary. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the sepulcher. <laughs> Just think about it. Okay, Matt Kenny, the other Mary, the other Mary, you know, Mary Magdalene and uh, the other one, the other Mary were there. Would Matthew refer again? The question rises. Would Matthew refer to the mother of our Lord as the other Mary? Doesn't it make much more sense to think that this other Mary, this Mary, the mother of James and Josie's? Mary, the mother of James, that this other Mary is someone else, is possibly the Mary that is mentioned in John chapter 19, verse 25, where we read, but standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother. So now there's his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So here, here for the first time and the only time we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then we have Mary's sister, who is called Mary, the mother of Clopas. And then we also have Mary Magdalene. And so here's the thought: If Mary, the wife of Clopas, was Mary's sister, sister again is probably being used to mean near near relative, unless Mary's parents named both their daughters Mary. <laughs> Or sister-in-law, so,
1: right? Could yeah, be sister-in-law, could be cousin, y- yeah. could be like you mentioned. Sister could be used here the same way that brother could be used. Yeah, right, right up so, the, right
0: up the street for me from me in in West Virginia, they have a word. It's called kin. My kin, my kinfolk. Yeah, <laughs>
2: my, yeah, my kinfolk, my relatives. Okay, but right. let me let me tie this together then. If Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary's sister, if her sons were James and Josie's Simon, whatnot. Then it makes sense that they could have been referred to in these earlier texts as Jesus's brothers, because they were indeed Jesus's near relatives of some kind. But anyway, be- because of all this, here's how I tie this together. I, w- I want to make a point of noting that prominent Protestant scholars, and I'm I'm saying very prominent New Testament scholars, W. D. Davies and Dale Allison, have written that the brothers of Jesus. Mentioned in Mark 6 and then again in Matthew 13, those classic passages, these brothers of Jesus, and I quote them now, were not the sons of Jesus's mother, but of another Mary. So point one is the flexibility of these Greek terms, Adelphos and Adelphi. Point two is, wow, these brothers that are named in those classic passages as being Jesus's brothers appear to be the sons of another Mary. And then the third argument, which is very powerful, that James and Josie's and Simon and so forth were not the biological brothers and sisters of Mary. There's another argument that is very powerful, but I want I, I want to throw this one over to Kenny to answer because this is one that Kenny has told me meant a whole lot to him in his own conversion.
0: Yeah, you you kind of ended there, Ken, with the the first part of uh, John's Gospel, chapter 19, the foot of the cross. Uh, verse 25, where it says, But standing by the cross, Jesus, uh, w- of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And, you know, with respect to everything that you said up to this point, Ken, I, I would have considered the texts that you read before silver bullet texts to go against the Catholic position that, or the Christian, I would say the church's position for f- over 1500 years that Mary was always a virgin or perpetually a virgin. I would have interpreted those verses to just completely decimate the idea uh, that that could be true. And what I was doing when I was reconciling all of this in, in my heart and in my head and in my understanding of Scripture is I was doing what we're doing right here. I was going through one verse at a time and just Exegeting it, you know, interpreting it. And then I came to this text, Ken and Matt. I came to this text and I remember sitting at my desk, sitting in front of my, my digital library and coming here to John's gospel chapter 19. And I read, uh, uh, verse 25. Great. Jesus is there, dying, you know, having died on the cross. All these women are there. And then I came to verse 26. It says this. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And and, and I remember reading this when I was having my Mary rumble with the Catholic theology on Mary. And I remember pushing back from my desk and looking at that text, and just it just like it started uh I don't know, reverberating in my brain. Wait, 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 wait. And all of these Old Testament backgrounds, Law of Moses, New Testament texts, all of these un- uh, um, sort of interpretive um lenses started just flying at me, and my and my brain started opening. I said, This is it. For me, I'm done. <laughs> Mary was always a virgin. Well, how so? Well Here's how so. Number one, Mary at the time of the, of the death of her son Jesus on the cross was already a widow. So that's point number one. Check that box. She was already a widow. Okay. According to the law of Moses, whose responsibility is it for, uh, to to take care of that widow, Mary? Well, it's the responsibility of her kids. <laughs> and so it would be then first, the first responsibility would fall to her eldest child. So then it, it would fall to Jesus. So Jesus is her firstborn son. New Testament uses that language. So she's being cared for by her firstborn son. Okay, well, what if he dies? Well, by law, she has other options. Um, by Jewish law, she has other options. So option number one is she could get married again. Uh, to, to another man, she, she could enter into another marriage covenant and that man could take care of her. But if she doesn't do that and the eldest son dies, well, then the responsibility to care for mom, who's a widow and who, whose oldest son has died, then falls to the next child, the next son, the next family that can take care of her. And this doesn't happen. In this text, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to someone who's not a relative at all, not to one of her other children, if she has any, not to a sister and her husband, and not to a brother and his wife, or a single brother, or any other child. What Jesus does is he entrusts the care of his mother. To a non-family member, John, the disciple, it says that that Jesus loved. Just a couple of thoughts here on this that were helpful to me. What I did after after I let this text sort of slam down on me with all these backgrounds in mind is I started typing furiously, and I've actually printed out a couple of the notes that I wrote four years ago about what I saw here. Just read a couple of them to you here. Uh, I, I typed on my notes. There are cultural and Old Testament backgrounds and law at work in this text. Consider what Jesus does for his mother in John 19. If there were other biological children to Joseph and Mary, they would have had the cultural, familial, religious, and legal obligation to take care of Mary after Jesus' death and and then that carries forward into the ethos of the church in the New Testament and I write here in my notes 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 4 If a widow has children or grandchildren then let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God so if 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 the church believes this that this is pleasing in the sight of God, then, then Jesus effectively robs his own siblings from doing what is pleasing in the sight of God for his own mother, okay? But then to move on even further, down in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, listen to what Paul says. But if any provide not for his own, and especially those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so, so this is the, the, again, the ethos of the early Christian community is that if your mother loses all of her, you know, her, her oldest, uh, uh, if she loses her husband and her, her, you know, one of her children, the family is to step in and take care of mom. This is, this is how they believed. And then listen to James, James chapter one, verse 27. Religion, he says, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's self unstained from the world. So these things are sort of sort of closing in on my mind. And I'm beginning to read this text in John 3. I'm pulling the text up through uh the, the law of Moses, I'm pulling it up through these New Testament references to, to widows, but I'm also doing one other thing. I'm pulling it up through things that Jesus did for widows in the gospel, not just his mom, but for other widows. And uh, in, in the, in the, um, gospel of Luke, Jesus goes into this town of Nain where there's a funeral happening <laughs> and everyone's crying and wailing. And it's because this widow has lost her only son. Her one and only son, and it says that Jesus steps near the bear, the 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 funeral procession, and he puts his hand, you know, on it, and he and he raises this widow's son, and he gives her raised from the dead back to his mom. What he essentially does there is restores her capacity to be taken care of because she has no one else. Now, Jesus does this for another widow in the Gospel of Luke. And I remember going, you know what? I've read about this when I was teaching through the Gospel of Luke. I read about this in my favorite Bible commentary on the Gospel of Luke uh, by Joel Green, his commentary on Luke. And listen to what he says. He says, Most telling in Luke's account is this portrayal of the woman's catastrophic state. She is a widow who has lived since her husband's death in relation to her only son, himself a young man. With his passing, she is relegated to a status of dire vulnerability without a visible means of support and certainly deprived of her access to the larger community and any vestige of social status within the village. Well, if... If Mary has all these other sons and daughters, then that certainly wouldn't have been true for her, and there wouldn't have been any reason at all for, for John to take her into his home. All of this is swirling around in my mind as I am reading this text, and it was at that moment I called my wife <laughs> into the office, I showed her all these notes that I just uh, read to you, and and much more than this, and I said, this is it. I'm done with perpetual virginity. I'm done. It's true. It's true. It's true. I'd always read these texts dismissing it. Once I started listening to the church, once I started really looking at the biblical language, once I started looking at the cultural backgrounds, once I started reading these texts, down inside of the context in which they were happening, they all started to resonate With what all of these commentators, scholars, leaders, and and writers in church history had always said all along, and that is that Mary and Joseph raised one child, and that child was Jesus, and that's it. Great job on that. That's a lot
1: lot to take in. Um, There are so many arguments we haven't gotten to cover, but before we get to our conclusion, I want to talk about one that you just barely hinted at. Uh, And I'm not going to take us down this rabbit hole, but you talk about Jesus as the firstborn. And, uh, you know, in common parlance in the 21st century, when we talk about our firstborn, we usually mean in relation to the other ones that are born. Uh, In Judaism, in the Mosaic law, firstborn was actually a legal distinction applied to whoever opened the womb. It did not necessarily imply that there was a secondborn or any otherborn who knew. Firstborn was a legal standing, that's not necessarily right. a bullet point in an ongoing chronology. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. So, I mean, that's another piece that we can't even... I mean, Brant Petrie, I think, talks about this in one of his many books about the Jewish roots of what's Watzits. He's got a few. But let's wrap it up. Uh, Ken, how do you want to kind of tie this all together?
2: Well... Uh- Yeah, I have a thought. I'd I'd like to conclude, I guess, by just emphasizing something that Kenny referred to last week, and that is that the Marian dogmas of the church are not so much about Mary as they are about Jesus. I think Kenny said that in his church, there was a phrase everybody knew, and that is, it's all about Jesus. Okay, And I want to emphasize that we've looked so far at two of the Marian dogmas in chronological order. The first one that came about in church history. Mary is the mother of God. And the second one, Mary's perpetual virginity. And I wanted to just, just, as I thought through quickly the first five ecumenical councils of Christian history, during which these two Marian dogmas were defined, I think that we can see this. It's all about Jesus. At, at Nicaea in 325 AD, it's all about Arianism being rejected and Jesus being declared to be God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. um, Arius had said that Jesus was the first and highest creation of God. No, in fact, through him all things were made. At Constantinople, the second ecumenical council in 381 AD, this was all reaffirmed with some other things. At Ephesus in 431 AD, the third ecumenical council, this was affirmed, and it was affirmed contrary to the teaching of the Nestorians, that in Jesus there are not two persons. Jesus was one person. Jesus was the second person, in fact, of the blessed Trinity, the incarnate Word, as John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because of this, Jesus being one person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Mary could rightly be titled Theotokos, or the Mother of God. We go to Chalcedon in 451, and the two natures of Christ are further defined. You see, it's all about Christology. The first, the second, the third, and now the fourth. Jesus' two natures are defined. And then at the second council of Constantinople in 553, the fifth um, ecumenical council of Christian history. Mary is again declared to be the mother of God because of who Jesus is, and given the second title, Ever-Virgin. So she is dogmatically defined to be Ever-Virgin in 553 AD at the Second Council of Constantinople. And what I want to emphasize and point out is simply this. The context for all of this is Christology. It's the person of Jesus. Who was Jesus? And because of that, if Mary is titled the mother of God, it's only to emphasize in the starkest of terms that the child that she bore was God in the flesh, was was Emmanuel, God with us. And if Mary is to be titled ever virgin, again, it's only because, or it's it's only to emphasize the fact that she was consecrated in her life entirely to this, to the to the most profound and unique event of all of human history, the incarnation of the Son of God. That's why she had to be consecrated. And I just want to emphasize that as I close. And Kenny, do you have any concluding thoughts? You can wrap it up.
0: Yep, just just two things. I, I would say, uh, agree with you there. I'm going to hold the it's all about Jesus till my second thought here. My first thought is I, as I add concluding thoughts is, Look what we've done in this episode and what we're trying to do in in every episode. And that's something that both Ken and I would say we aspired to when we were not Catholics. Uh, If I could talk to pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny about the way that he was interpreting Scripture, I would say to him, Kenny, you weren't doing exegesis like you thought you were doing. You wanted to be an exegete. You wanted to be... Uh, uh, an expository preacher, you wanted to be this—you know—scripture, scripture, scripture. But you were making big mistakes with how you were interpreting scripture. And what we've done in, in this episode is we've appealed to biblical theology, the story and sweep of scripture over time, biblical language, the meaning of biblical words, uh, biblical backgrounds, the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of how they relate to one another, and and cultural realities, and all of these interpretive tools. And we have added to all of that a, a an ecclesial hermeneutic. That is, we've now been reading the Bible with the Church, who has this intact memory that takes it all across uh, the ages of the Church. And what we find when we do all of this work is that the Scripture always means what the Church always said it means, even back at the beginning. And that is that Joseph and Mary had one child. That child was Jesus. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, to to do the it's all about Jesus thing, Ken. Here's a real practical way that I that I did this uh, myself. You know, my wife and I we adopted a, a little boy from from the Ukraine when he was three years old. He's our only child, and he's adopted. And he has a severe birth defect. He has great. He had great needs when we adopted him. And at some point, because we'd never been able to have kids, at some point after we kind of got things on the rails with him, we looked at each other. I remember we were in our bedroom looking at each other, talking about the day. And my wife asked me, do you think we should adopt another child? You know, should we, should we do this again? And we both agreed, no. The needs of this child, the destiny of this child, this the special place that this child needs to have in our minds and our attention, the things that we have to do for this child are so important that we made a, a commitment to each other that this would be the only child that we together would raise. And I would say that this helps me to understand Mary's Consecration to God and Joseph's consecration to God. They were consecrated to Jesus. In other words, their vow of virginity, even maybe they didn't know it when they made it when they were kids, uh, when they were younger, you know, their vow of, of, of consecrated virginity to God was all about Jesus. It was all about raising the son of God to become exactly who he was born to be and what, what he was meant to be so that the world could be saved, and so for me, that that very practical uh, insight from just a little little sliver of my own life has helped me to understand. Well, why would why would two people make a commitment to only have one one child? So, for what it's worth, those are my closing thoughts. It's, a, it's a powerful
1: closing thought, and a powerful closing thought, especially for those of us from evangelical backgrounds where Jesus Christ is everything. We focus everything that we have on Him, and it doesn't matter what we sacrifice for Him. Right to think that Mary and Joseph might have had that conversation as well. Right, that right. this is this is our world. We've been given an inc- incredible trust by God, and this is where all our attention and energy and focus goes. Uh, but the one other thing um, that just to to kind of wrap up something that, that you just said uh, at the beginning of that, Kenny, is you know all of us from coming from solo scriptural backgrounds would have said you know, something to the effect of you want to know what the text means, what the text is telling you, you read it real hard, right? And you pray to the Holy Spirit, right? you That's a thats a good rule for exegetes and non-exegetes alike. You know, you read it as good as you can. You pray to the Holy Spirit. You ask to be shown what it means. The church is coming at it with something else that we weren't coming at it with. Uh, the church is a, it has a living memory that it is carried forth. This is a family history. This exactly. isn't just like a, well, I wonder what this means. It is right. a, and you used this phrase at the beginning, uh, Kenny, uh, the church has always blank, right? Because the church has carried this thing forth. This is the this is how the family's always talked about the family. And exactly. so that is a different kind of, it's not something that was just invented because somebody popped up and it was like, I think this is what it means. And the Pope was like, yeah, let's put that at, uh, let me put my signature on that. No, this is a family history carried forth, Um And you can look all over the early church, and this is what you find. Uh, And you can look in the Reformation and find with your boys Luther and Calvin. I didn't get to read it today, but you can find Perpetual Virginity Argued For by John Wesley. So, another long one in the books. I feel like they're going to get shorter from here, but I I make no promises. Because there's been a lot. There's been a lot to discuss. But uh, hopefully some of this has resonated with some of you for whom this particular uh, Marian teaching by... Catholics has has been difficult. If uh, you want to connect with us and find more episodes, go to chnetwork.org slash on the journey to watch the previous ones. Uh, If you want to be in conversation with people who are sorting questions like this out right now, then please come check us out in our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. And if you are uh, someone who wants to make sure that this kind of content and these kind of conversations are available for free to anyone who's wrestling with these questions, please consider supporting us and especially uh, consider being a monthly supporter at chnetwork.org slash compass. I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley, Kenny Burchard. Thank you again. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks again. See ya. Yep.